Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We've uh, we've been uh, this this is the third week for our series on the armor of God. It started two weeks ago, and this is the third uh, part to it. And uh, the first one we talked about. Uh, who our enemy is, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces and heavenly realms, right? And the second, we talked about evil and, and, uh, and the devil and what God has done about it, what he is doing about it, and what he's going to do about it. We talked that about, about that in week one. Uh, last week, I skipped over the armor right to the end in verse 18, uh, because it says, and and uh, pray on all occasions with uh, pray in the spirit on all occasions for all the saints anyway um, and and I skipped over because of the prayer summit and I wanted to really uh, motivate you encourage you about this matter of prayer again uh, and uh, so we did that and I said we'd be coming back to the belt of truth and that's what we're gonna do this uh, this morning uh, we're gonna come back to the first piece of armor. We said there are defensive wep- there are def- uh, there's defensive armor and there's offensive weapons. But this series primarily we're talking about the, the defensive side of the equation, the armor of God. That's what we're talking about. And so we're going to talk about the uh, belt of truth because, uh, because what I just quoted out of verse 12, Paul then wrote, therefore put on the full armor of God that when the day of evil comes you may be able to uh, stand uh, stand against the devil. After you've done everything sta- to stand, he says. And then he says, uh, stand, in uh, verse 14, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, that you have, you have revealed to us how this world Acts. There's many things we can see, we can deduce without the revealed Word of God, but there's much that we cannot understand and know without your Word. And you've revealed it to us. And so we thank you for your precious Word, and uh, we thank you for how you have taught us about the enemy, you've shown us about the enemy, who he is, how he operates, but you've also given us armor to defend ourselves in this war for souls and the advancement of your kingdom. And so thank you for the protection that is afforded us when we intentionally respond to you and put on that armor. Show us how to do that. And uh, then we choose to engage this morning as your spirit speaks to us through this matter, about this particular matter. We choose to not only engage, but to respond in obedience to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We said, I said a couple weeks ago that uh, this whole matter of putting on the armor is not just a matter of, of saying a little prayer in the morning and saying, you know, uh, now Lord, I'm putting on the, this and that and everything. Now I'm going to explain why it's not just a little formula like, like that. And uh, you'll see it already in the first piece of armor that we put, that we put on. Now the Roman soldiers buckled on a belt that secured the breastplate and uh, from which they hung their swords and, and it even protected the midsection or waist. So what spiritual feature is the waist 
picturing? Well, Peter gives us the answer, through, though the English translation has muddled it some. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, pre prepare your minds for action. Now, compare what Peter says there with what Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 14. Or 6, uh, verse 14. And you'll see that the that the two Greek phrases are almost identical except for a little the injection of a couple of words in the Greek in 1st Peter so in the Ephesians passage it is translated having girded the waist of you in 1st Peter it says having girded the waist of the mind of you they're talking about the exact same thing but Peter gives clarity Paul assumes that you understand what he's talking about and certainly talking about the belt of truth would already indicate he's talking about the mind but Peter just clarifies that for us and says having girded the waist of the mind of you it's the exact same phrase this is where the devil attacks us intellectually he attacks the truth uh, now he had, Am I cracking up? Okay, I think our guys know that. And uh, uh, I, I wasn't sure if it was just in my head or not. And at 63, it, you don't always know what's cracking up. Um, so now I'm relieved to know it's not me. This is where the devil attacks, uh, attacks us intellectually, attacks the truth. He attacks also the emotions, he attacks our behavior. But in this specific one, we're talking specifically how he attacks us in the mind by attacking the truth. The devil doesn't want you to know the truth because he knows that the truth will what? Yeah, in John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, he said, uh, Jesus said, so... If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, in verse 36, he said, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus is truth, but the devil is a liar who counters truth with deception. This is where the devil, uh, devil attacks us intellectually, attacks the truth, because the devil doesn't want us to be free. He, doesn't, he knows that. Truth sets us free. Now, I said, Jesus is truth, but the devil is a liar who counters truth with what? Deception, exactly. Revelation 12, uh, verse 9, John said, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the what? Deceiver of the whole world. One way that the devil is deceiving many is by convincing, and by the way, he has many different schemes and strategies. And that, uh, I just quoted that in Ephesians 6. He says, so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. He has many schemes, and many have written on different things. But we can only talk, we, we can only talk about one. I was going to talk about just two. I had to cut that one completely out just to focus even on one. And even that one I can't, uh, focus, I can't give as much as I would like to because of time. And uh, he, he, so one of the schemes, one of the ways that the devil is deceiving many is by convincing so many that Christianity is about a blind faith. That's a foundational deception. Because if you start to waver on that, and you start to think, yeah, we are, it is kind of weak. And, uh, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's a different religion. And you, and you start to think like that, then when there's other issues, other social issues like, uh, that are being fought in, in our society today, and that Christians are standing on the opposite side of, 
if you are weak on on whether the whether whether scripture and Christianity is just a blind faith, then you're definitely going to be weak on the other issues. If you're solid on that particular one and you just know, you know, you know, you know, and you just know this is the truth. You don't think it, you don't just give a right answer when you're in church, but you just you live your life like that because you know then you will be able to, then there's a better chance that you will be able to stand uh, against these other issues that are rising against Christianity in our society today. So, <clears throat> if you start to believe that, uh, that it's blind faith, if you don't put on the belt of truth to know how to defend yourself on this, I'm not talking about defending others now, helping others to see it, I'm talking about yourself then there's a very good chance that with the increasing pressure today that you're going to fall away from the faith. Many already have. Many already have. You'll never stand against the national mind that is forming, or you'll be so weak that you'll just attend and then your kids will fall away. I heard that there were uh, four teens, and I have no idea who their name or anything. I don't want to know or anything. No details were given me, so if you're one of them, I'm really thrilled. But four teens from Southland were thinking about walking away from their faith this summer. And at camp, <laughs> they were strengthened again. This is no little thing. This is no small matter that we're talking about today. This is a huge issue. So is our faith a blind faith or is it altogether reasonable? Well, let's begin with that. And that's why I'm, I'm going to use this as an illustration of the importance of putting on the belt of truth. It's not the only issue that we have of truth that we have to put on around our mind, gird our minds with, but it is a key one. And so I'm going to use it as an illustration to demonstrate it. But at the same time, I trust that in doing so, the Holy Spirit will fortify your faith uh, and make you stronger in it. If, is there a God? Well, if you don't believe in God, you have to believe the universe just always was there, that it was infinite. But if the universe was never created, then it doesn't have a what? Beginning. It must just always have been there forever and ever and ever. For many years, that's what scientists who didn't believe in God thought. Bertrand Russell, for example, said the universe is just there and that's all. Well, that's quite the explanation for a philosopher. 1915, Albert Einstein came along and he published his famous general theory of relativity and that means the universe is getting bigger and bigger every day. And if the universe is getting bigger and bigger every day, then that means if we go back in time further and further, then the universe will get smaller and smaller until it is nothing. But that contradicted what Einstein and other scientists believed, that the universe was eternal and static, so he gave much of it, uh, the remainder of his life to trying to disprove his own theory. But then along in 1929 uh, came Edwin Hubble, and he was obsessed with astronomy, though he had been trained as a lawyer, uh, because his father wanted him to be a lawyer. When he died, he went back to astronomy. He started looking closely at distant galaxies, and he noticed that wherever he looked, all the galaxies were moving away from us and away from each other. That, this meant that Einstein's theory was right all along. The universe was expanding and growing each day, and that meant 
there must have been a day in the distant past where the universe exploded into being out of nothing. I mean, it had to have a start then. Science was coming to a conclusion. So, they started to call that beginning day, what? The Big Bang, exactly right. What happened the day that the universe appeared out of nothing? That was the day that Christians say, and the Bible says, that God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, Judaism says the same thing. Just like the Bible said all along. But somebody says, or objects, skeptic will say this, but I can't see God and I only believe what I see. Really? <laughs> Is that really true? Here's uh, response number one. Just because I can't perceive something with my five senses doesn't mean it isn't real. And everybody actually believes that. Dogs hear sounds that we don't hear. But that doesn't mean that the sound isn't there. Is that true? And yet none of us has become a dog to f find that out. I can't smell, but does that mean the rest of you can't smell? Yeah, I need you to talk back to me. <laughs> Does it mean that? No, it doesn't. Until uh, many years ago, we couldn't see distant galaxies because we didn't have telescopes. Does that mean the galaxies didn't exist? No. We just are very finite with our, our senses, true? And we're discovering all kinds of things that we didn't know before they were there all along, even though we couldn't perceive them with our senses. Here's response number two. If something is there, it means someone was there. It also means that if something is missing, someone was there. <laughs> Years ago, when I was dating Fran, do you want to hear a dating story? Yes. Okay, it's a good one. And uh, so I, I, I'd, I'd, be there on a, I'd be there on a Saturday evening, and Fran's mom would make this uh, pineapple square. Um, and she knew that I loved it. And so she would make that every Saturday, and then put it in the refrigerator, and then on Sunday she would serve it up. So I would stay long enough till they would go to bed, and uh, then I would go to the refrigerator. And there was a 9 by 13 pan with this pineapple square. Oh, it's good. And uh, uh, so I, I, you know, it has pretty high rim around it, this, this particular thing. And uh, I think it was glass, glass one. But, uh, oh, no, it couldn't have been. No, it couldn't have been glass. It, it wasn't glass. But it was 9 by 13. And I would stand at the refrigerator and I'd, I'd, I'd look at the angles and I'd think, um, if, you, if you just cut near that edge there, and you stand back, can you see it? And I discovered that you couldn't. There was a whole strip that you could cut out of there, and you could eat that. And it, was, it actually turned out to be a, a pretty major portion. And, uh, but if you open the refrigerator, it just looked like everything was fine. And so I, that's what I did. I did that one, one Saturday night. I just cut it out like that, and I ate the whole thing. And um, then I knew, like, if her mom always came into the kitchen or something and opened the refrigerator, everything looked fine. 
and then the next morning when she'd get up and she's starting to prepare for the, for the noon, uh, noon meal and stuff, I wouldn't be there and I wouldn't get hecked then, right? <laughs> so uh, <but laughs> it didn't take her long to figure out who it was. You know, she went down through the list of the kids and it wasn't them. That only left one person and that was Fran's boyfriend. And so after that, when that happened, she, she knew exactly who it was and she'd call, she, apparently she'd call, call me out on that. I don't know what kinds of things she would call me, but she would blame me for it. But she didn't see me, right? Did, did she see me? No, she didn't see. But did she know that I was there? She absolutely knew that I was there. She saw the effects of me being there. And we see the, even though we can't see God, we can see the effects of somebody having been here. We see the fingerprints, we see the results. Now when scientists tell you that the universe just popped out of nothing, that is not science. They did not see it and they cannot demonstrate it. Is that true? That's just pure philosophizing. That's all it is. So the question is, which is more reasonable and rational? In our experience, if there's something there, someone was there. If something is missing, someone was there. We can tell. That's the, that's the universal experience of people. So is it more reasonable with all that evidence to think that if this whole thing exists, there must have been somebody that is, uh, that there must be somebody behind it? Or is it more reasonable to think the very opposite of what all our experience, all the experience of all the people in the world is, which is more reasonable. You see, our faith is pretty rational, isn't it? It's actually very, very logical. If somebody, something is there, then somebody put it there. So re who, who really has blind faith, the Christian or the person who refuses to follow such straightforward logic? Romans chapter 1 says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, uh, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without what? without excuse. So then the question is, why doesn't God just reveal himself plainly? I mean, like, why doesn't he just settle this issue once and for all? Like, why does he go behind door number one or two or three and sort of hide himself? Like, leaves lots of evidence that he, you know, he left a <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when we, we had teens, and you could tell in the morning that they had been in the kitchen because what was left lying around. There's lots of stuff laying around, in an orderly fashion, mind you, that gives evidence that he was here. So why doesn't he just open the door and say, here I am? Wouldn't that just solve the matter plainly? Wouldn't that just take care of things and we wouldn't have to wrestle with this anymore? Well, the reason is because he actually wants men and women to seek him. And there's many passages that talk about that. Acts 17, 26, 27 says, uh, Proverbs 8, 17, Matthew 7, 7. 
But Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says it as well. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. But why? Why do it that way? It goes right back to uh, something, uh, an issue that I've talked about for years and talked about just recently again. It comes right back to this whole matter of coercion. God won't coerce us. He, 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 because of love, he wants us to choose him. You see, there's not going to be any people in heaven who got there begrudgingly. Oh, shoot, there is a God. I, like, I mean, like, how do you overturn that? Like, how do you say there isn't when he's plainly there? So what God does is he puts a whole, uh, like, <laughs> breadcrumbs all the way to the door, like, like a trail of breadcrumbs, like a foot high, mind you. Not just the odd one scattered here. I mean a foot high so you can't miss it. You can't go off the trail if you don't want to. And it leads right to the door, and you go right up to the door. You can practically hear him breathing, metaphorically speaking, but you can't open the door, and he won't come out. And the reason is, because he doesn't want to coerce you into believing. You see, that would violate your integrity as a human being to make a willful choice. And if he violates that willful choice, then we don't actually have love. You can't have love if there isn't a choice. That's why he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, as, uh, as I've said before. There has to be a legitimate choice. So there is an element of faith, but so much evidence that even a simple person can find him. Even a simple person can find him. He makes it so logical that you can't miss him if you want him. But if you don't want him, you won't have him. That's how he makes it. There won't be any reluctant believers in heaven begrudging. Ugh. Wish I didn't have to be here, but it's better than the alternative. Do you know what I mean? The people that are going to be there are going to want. And is, I mean, at some point, is God going to reveal himself? Yeah. And will everybody know? Yes. Paul said to the Philippians, he said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But right now, he does it this way, not to make people trip who don't want to trip. Uh, and not to confuse the issue, he makes it that plain, but so that those who actually have a true heart will find him. And those that don't, won't. And that's how it works. So what we've just discussed is actually a major proof of God's existence, and we simply deduced it. That's why the Bible doesn't even try to prove God. It is self-evident. It simply states in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, what? God. <laughs> it doesn't go through, you know, an apologetic list of proofs for him. It just states the obvious, in the beginning, it's a self-evident truth, God. God created the heavens and the earth. So, which is the right God? There are many religions, they all have holy books, they believe passionately in their gods. 
Many say all religions are just different pathways to the same God, but they can't be equally true because they're saying very different things, often contradictory. Uh, Muslims and Christians say there's only one God, but Hindus say there are thousands of gods. They can't both be right. Christians say Jesus is the only way to heaven, but Muslims believe the, the very opposite. If you believe in Jesus, you go to hell. They can't be both right. They're opposites. So that means a lot of people have to be wrong <laughs> somewhere, logically speaking. So how can we sort this all out? Where do we begin? Now remember again, let's, let's not lose focus on, on the context of this particular message. We're speaking about the armor of God. And Paul is warning in the context of persecution because he's concerned that many are going to be deceived and they're going to walk away, they're going to fall away. And he's saying the first place that you have to, you have to buckle up on, you have to you have to gird your loins, one translation says, or buckle up uh, the belt of truth around your mind. And if ever there was a day and age when that was going to be true over the last while, it's certainly today. So how can we sort this all out? Where do we begin? What? what? It's possible to do some self-evident truths about God, even without the Bible. He must be of tremendous power, a God of tremendous power. Every tiny atom he created is packed with potential power. Man employs enormous power to hurl, hurl uh, you know, uh, um, a rocket or something into, into space, which is amazing, out of Earth's gravitational pull. That's quite a bit of power. By comparison, however, can we, can we even begin to imagine the sort of power needed to get the Earth in itself into orbit? Or pack the sun with the energy that fills our solar system? The one who created that kind of power cannot himself be less powerful. True? That's, that would be inconceivable. That means he must be extremely powerful. Well, we just deduced that. He must also be a God of tremendous intelligence. Man prides himself on his intelligence because he can understand the universe in which he lives. Though, in fact, the more he finds out, the less he seems to know. One doctor said to me some years back, he said, the more we discover, the more we realize we're just scratching the surface. That's true. How much more intelligent must be the one who made it all? What amazing complexity is involved in a simple substance like water which keeps our planet clean and fertile and cool. Tides move endlessly, washing our shores and bays and inlets. Millions of gallons of water are caught up into the air every day and then dropped back onto the land, often from an altitude of several miles, and yet so gently that it sustains life without harming plants and animals and people, unless it's some kind of a major catastrophic storm. But that's how it generally works. That's amazing. What kind of intelligence makes that happen? Wow. God must not all, uh, only be almighty, but incredibly intelligent. He must be God alone. There can be no other creative mind in the universe. I mean, when we're thinking about, you know, like Hinduism, for example, believes in millions of gods, as I was reading about that. Um, but if, if we think about it, if we can deduce that that's probably not true. 
In fact, it is just that, a universe, not a multiverse. However far we probe into space, we find that it runs on the same lines. Gravity and velocity still apply, the law of physics hold. The inescapable conclusion is that there can be only one God, because if, if there was many, many gods, and, and a lot of these religions, they believe they're even fighting each other, and fighting for turf and all of that kind of stuff, why then from one day to the next the laws might change, or from one place to another place the laws would, would change. And yet we find nothing like that. We see no conflict like that. It's a universe. There must be one incredible mind behind it all. God alone. He must be personal. This is completely logical when you think about it. As you look about, the highest, most advanced, apparently most significant creature is man. He has personality, which distinguishes him from the animals, including such things as thinking and feeling and deciding and speaking and relating to other people. Can God, who created personality, be less than what he created? Can he be less than me? Yes or no? No. He can be more than I am, but he can't be less than what I am. True? That's incredible. It follows then that God too must think and feel and decide and speak and relate. He must relate to human beings because everything seems to have a purpose. Everything. I mean, even, even when you think about the ecological systems and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the food chains and everything, you just take one of those things out of there and suddenly everything gets messed up. Our lakes get all messed up and that kind of stuff. Each, each thing has a purpose, true? That means we have a purpose. Everything has a purpose. So God didn't just accidentally, he didn't just kind of wake up one day and just say, oh, what the heck, let's make a world with people in it. What are we going to do with them? I don't know. No, no, there's purpose, there's meaning. There's all kinds of things we can deduce about who this God is, and we haven't even touched the scriptures. And that already helps us to narrow down and understand which might be a the religions that still stay standing when we look at that. We're talking about blind faith. Is this blind faith? No, we're talking about something that's incredibly rational and reasonable. That helps us immensely in sorting out which is the right God. Buddhism is, uh, God, it has no explanation for the universe at all because it doesn't even really believe in God or any gods. Hinduism, I already mentioned, is polytheistic, but then you wouldn't have a predictable universe the way we do, and all science is built. Science was founded on the basis of Christians who believed that God was predictable. He was orderly and predictable, and there was only one of him. And so you could count on those laws, and all science has been built on that foundation. That's incredible. Well, that takes care of some of the religions. Mythological religions don't give historical explanations for how the world got here. Their stories are mythical. Uh, 
you know, they, they believe in all kinds of things, reincarnation, all kinds of things, but it's not tied to anything scientific, it's not tied to anything historical, how God moved in history, that they can prove and they can see, there's none of that. So that wipes out a lot of religions and that starts to bring a, a narrow things down. That leaves us with three big religions. Again, we're talking about the belt of truth and not being carried away. Paul, Paul warned the Colossians in chapter 2, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophies that depend on human traditions and the basic principles of this world and not on Christ. We have to arm ourselves against deceptive philosophies that the devil puts in there. And uh, that leaves us with three big religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. They're monotheistic, meaning there's only one God. They're historical, factual religions. So which one is right? Well, Jesus is the key difference between the, between the three. Oh, there's other differences too, but that certainly is a standout. Christianity is the only religion that claims that the God of the universe came down to live among us as a man, the God-man, Jesus. Now, ancient and non-Christian historians like Josephus and Tacitus, Lucian, Pliny the Elder, and others all talk about them in their writings. I have a whole book written by Gary ha Habermas, I think is, is, is the way you pronounce it, just on, on sources other than the Bible that talk about Jesus. A whole book on it. It's incredible. So we know he was an actual person who walked on the earth. There's tons of evidence for it. Atheists can't deny it. What they do deny and can deny is that he was God. What is really unique about Jesus is that he claimed to be God. In, uh, in John chapter 10, it says in verse 31, just before this passage, but it says, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning for any of these, the Jews said, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be, claim to be God. C.S. Lewis said that the one thing you can't call him is a great moral teacher because many say, well, he was a great moral teacher. No, C.S. Lewis has taken that one off the table once and for all. He says that option isn't open to us because he claimed to be God. And that claim leads to only three options, none of them being that he's a, a good moral teacher. Jesus' claim to be God is either true or false. If it's true, he is what? Then he's God. He's Lord. Exactly right. If Jesus' claims were false, then there are just two options. He knew his claims were false, then he was a liar. If he didn't know his claims were false, he was a lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis said. I love the way C.S. Lewis did it. So was he a liar? Well, if Jesus knew that his claims were false, then he was a liar, but he was also a hypocrite because he told others to tell the truth. That means he also was a demon because he told people to trust in him for their eternal destiny. And lastly, he was a fool because he died for that claim. So if Jesus was a liar, a con man, therefore an evil, foolish man, then how can we explain that he left us the most profound moral instructions and example that anyone has ever left? He changed the course of history completely. Dating system, calendar, everything. 
social things. Oh, I wish I could talk about that. This whole series, this, this, this one thing that we're talking about, Belt of Truth, could go into just a major series. Philip Schaff said, historian, church historian said, someone who lived as Jesus lived, taught as Jesus taught, and died as Jesus died, could not have been a liar. So was he a lunatic? Well, the philo philosopher Peter Kreeft said this. Now listen carefully. I, kinda, I, get, I get a kick out of him. He said, a measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. Okay? That's how he defines sanity. Kreeft then went on to say, if I think I'm the greatest philosopher, then I'm, a, uh, I'm an arrogant fool. He said, if I think I am Napoleon, then I'm over the edge. And then he said, if I think I am a butterfly, I have fully embarked from the shores of sanity. <laughs> I love that statement. And then he said, fourthly, if I think I'm God, I'm even more insane because the gap between anything finite and the infinite God is even greater than the gap between a man and a butterfly. True? Yet his teachings were brilliant. He had an abundance of wisdom. He was loving and compassionate, forgiving and welcoming. You know, we have this idiom that we use. Um, we say the proof is in the pudding, right? Emulating, uh, let's talk about his followers. What kind of followers did he produce? Emulating him, millions of his followers made incredible and selfless contributions to the world. They saved abandoned children, building hundreds of orphanages. They saved them from infanticide, introduced child labor laws, improved the lives of women, introduced formal education for the masses, not just the leader men. They founded hospitals, founded things like the International Red Cross. They founded universities. Many believers became great scientists, Bacon and Da Vinci and Kepler, Isaac, Newton, Boyle and Pasteur. And on and on and on. They had compassion on the poor, which led to the founding of the Charity Organization Society, which was later renamed the United Way. All these things were founded by Christ followers. All of them. Lunatics don't produce followers like that. Would you agree? So he couldn't have been a lunatic. So what do you do with Jesus claimed to be God? Who was, was he? Jesus said he would prove it by rising from the dead. Now that's humanly impossible, isn't it? Only God can do that, would you agree? The question of what, which religion is right comes down to this. Did he or did he not rise from the dead? And for that we use legal courtroom evidence, not scientific evidence. Several hundred people said that he did rise from the dead. There's three options. They were crazy. Did they all have the same hallucinations? It's not possible. It's not possible. Hundreds of people spread out over different parts of the country at different times couldn't have had the exact same hallucination. True? So that's not a very good option. How about the second option? They lied about it. Well, what motive would they have for lying about Jesus rising from the dead? Oh, surely this would make their lives much, much better. Huh? Or they would get rich from it. No, it made their lives much, much harder. And even while it was making them harder, they preached all the louder. 
Many were killed for saying they saw Jesus alive after his death. They were crucified. They were burnt in oil, had their heads chopped off. And, and this all in light of the fact that when you see right after the resurrection of Christ, where are the disciples? Already fomenting the lie? No, they're hiding in fear. But suddenly they turn from these fearful individuals into these, these bold, courageous people knowing that they're going to they're pay the ultimate price for, telling that, for, for making that statement. That's incredible. They were driven from their homes, forced to flee, all because they said they saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Listen, people may die for something they think is true, but nobody would be willing to be imprisoned, tortured, and killed for something they know to be a lie. You might die for something you think is true, but you won't die for something you know is a lie. A fairy tale. Yet that's exactly what these hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection did. No lie has that kind of power. Let's just stop for a minute again. Let's get the context here. Why are we talking? This is, you know, this has an apologetic, this is an apologetic kind of message. But it's in the context of put on the belt of truth. Because the enemy is coming with all kinds of schemes. And one of the schemes is that it's just a blind faith. Some of these things that we're talking about, I've talked about in the past, Chris has talked about, Tom's talked about. But you know what? You can find all this stuff in books that we have in our library in our church library. Church library. Not just my library, in the church library. And you can fortify yourself. There's a great one there called um, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Old, uh, you know, an older book written by Josh McDowell. First he wrote, he had, had a first one, he did it with his students, and then this one. It's arranged in such a way that you can easily find the topics you're looking for on any of these questions, on these big questions. Remarkable. Hundreds of pages in a thing like this. Very easy to read, well outlined. Not like most books, you don't even know where to find anything after you've read it. That's how most books are. Not this one. And uh, I'll encourage you later about that particular book as, as a good primer. Option number three, they were telling the truth. These people were so blown away that when they saw Jesus alive, they were overjoyed and willing to sacrifice their lives to spread the greatest news the world has ever heard. Every single person in the world, not just Christians, has to deal with this question, did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? We could, have talk, we could have talked about all of this from all kinds of different perspectives. How do we come to the truth? You know, creation and design and purpose and, and experience and all kinds, of, all kinds of different ways. But we've come at it from this more of a logical side today. The only option that holds any water is option number three, that they actually all saw Jesus risen alive and alive after his death, which means that it's all true. Then Jesus is Lord. Amen. Do you believe that, church? Now, I mean, is it solidly implanted? Do you, do you see how we come to this? This isn't just some blind faith. Oh, this is, you know, I think there's a, something here in a, in, a, in a book that says that. This is a very reasonable faith that we have. This isn't blind faith. It's rational. So that, we'll ask very quickly one more question. Oh, I mean again, I actually preached years ago, 2009, a whole series on this question, is the Bible reliable? 
And I've got five minutes to put all four or five messages in, into this one thing. Well, obviously I can't say very much about it, but I'll say something. Enough to maybe whet your appetite to go and fortify your minds with a belt of truth. Is what the Bible is saying about all this even reliable? Somebody just concocted this thing. Really? Well, number one, we can just look at three things that reveal reliability. There are many manuscripts, and there's a table coming up, and I hope you can read it. In the last column, but you can, uh, you can see the works, uh, you know, the different ones there, history of Herodotus, uh, Julius Caesar's, Gallic Wars, Homer's Iliad, the New Testament, so on and so forth. But I want you to notice the number of copies. There's only eight for Herodotus, the Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, ten, and Homer's Iliad, 643. And do you know how many manuscripts there are for the New Testament? 24,000 pieces of full, partial, all that kind of stuff. 24,000. Nobody doubt. You know, people say, well, I don't know if it's mean, you know, if we can, re it was reliably copied. The more copies you have, the more comparisons you can make. The more accurate it better be. Nobody doubts these other historical records. And yet when it comes to the New Testament, which has, and I don't have time to go into that, all kinds of archaeological support in stating things, so does the Old Testament, things that many people didn't even believe existed, that the Old and the New Testament would talk about. They didn't believe it, and then they'd uncover it later. It was right all along. 24,000! Is that a lot, church? Is this, is this irrational? Maybe if you had this flipped, it would be irrational. I think the people who believe in, in Homer's, uh, you know, in, in Julius Caesar's Gallic War and don't believe in the New Testament, they are more irrational. They're more illogical. We have something to stand on. The second one is the short time gap between the original manuscripts and the copies. Remember, these are all copies. We don't have the originals, and I can go into a discussion on that, but I already cut it out of my notes, so I won't. We don't have the originals, but take a look back at the table again. Now go back to the table, but now look at the second last column. And uh, you'll notice the time gap. Uh, you know, for the uh, history of Herodotus, 1,300 years be before, between the original manuscript, uh, manuscript and the latest copy that they have is 1,300 years. Is that close to the original? The answer is no, that's not close to the original. Uh, Julius Caesar, 950, but they believe it. Homer's Iliad, 400 years. The New Testament gets down as close as... 50 years. Is that close to the source? It's incredibly close to the source. We have, we have a sure foundation. Don't ever kid yourself. This isn't just pure blind faith. This is, this is really doing our homework. We stand on something very solid. Again, there has to be a faith element so that we're not coerced. So there has to be a faith element. 
But ours isn't a blind faith. God left enough, uh, enough evidence so that we can know him. And then, of course, there's the internal harmony uh, thing. The Bible is written by more than 40 different authors spanning over 60 generations and three continents. And it speaks with agreement on all matters of faith and doctrine. That is impossible. <laughs> like, how do you get, you know, and, and they were all, from all walks of life, these, uh, these, these 40 different authors. The Quran, for example, on the other hand, is the writings and record of one man. The biblical record we have here is an absolute miracle. How can you get 40 authors from 60 generations spent with people from such a variety of backgrounds writing in such a cohesive way that harmonizes and it doesn't contradict itself? How can you do that? That's miraculous, church. We have an incredible incredible faith, don't we? <laughs> it's solid, it's reasonable, it's rational. Is this blind faith? Not at all. It's completely logical, reasonable, rational. It takes more faith not to believe this than to believe it. But if you don't have this truth cinched around your mind, you will most likely fall away in the days to come. Because believing the Bible and in Jesus will cost you something. As a national mind, as I talked about two weeks ago, is forming against Christianity. If you aren't settled on this, it won't be worth believing in. Because it's going to cost you something. The context Paul wrote uh, this too was the church of Ephesus, which was under persecution. And he said, you need the truth to stand firm. You need this truth to guard against the deception in our schools, the universities, the media, and so on. But that brings us to the one last issue as we're concluding now, and that's this, your own truthfulness. Oh, we judge God and his truth. But how about our own hearts? Are they truthful? Do you have a true, sincere, and honest heart? Are you an honest seeker? Or is it a facade? Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us draw near with a true heart in assurance <clears throat> of faith. Not everyone who says they are seeking truth is honestly seeking truth. There's two key reasons that people reject truth today. Here's the first one. Because they don't want a God in their life. They don't want there to be a God in their life. Uh, years ago, uh, Fran and I attended a church. It was a church plant. And the church planting pastor, who uh, was our pastor, he, he, was, uh, he was witnessing to two doctors, a husband-wife team. They were both doctors. And he presented them with the claims of the gospel. And at the end, he invited them to receive Jesus. And they said they, they couldn't. He asked them why. And he said, because if, I, because if we do that, then we have to submit to him and obey, and we don't want to do that. Now, that was an honest answer. Most of them hide it under this guise of seeking truth 
but that it's irrational. We just demonstrated that's not true at all. It's a very rational faith, very logical. But the problem is people don't always want God in their life because then he gets to call the shots. See, we said, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he what? Lord. He's Lord. Here's the second reason why people don't always want Jesus, don't receive him, and don't want the truth. They reject it. They don't want to pay the price for truth. These are the ones who will applaud truth so long as it doesn't lead to a loss of reputation, a loss of promotion, prison, or persecution. You cannot put the belt of truth on unless you have a true heart, a true sincere heart. And a true sincere heart is just looking for truth and is willing to bend and submit to the Lord when they find the truth. That's what it is. And is willing to pay the price to not conform to the world or what I was calling the national mind that's forming. They're willing to stand firm even if it costs them something. Here's the weekly challenge for this week. Continue memorizing. Of course, for the series, it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18. And you have it uh, for this week. Uh, now we're at uh, verses 10 to 14 and 18. How many of you have been memorizing? Oh, very good, very good. I'll test you on it when I see you in the lobby. <laughs> Everybody's going to scatter out of here. No, no, I won't do that. I won't put you on the spot. Take notes from messages and library books. And there's two, two books that I want to suggest to you um, that can answer many of these kinds of questions. More evidence that demands a verdict. I referred to it already told you all about it, and it's about this thick. But it doesn't mean you have to remember it all and stuff. But listen, when you, if, if your kids see you doing these kinds of things, and you're putting on the belt of truth, and they see you studying with your Bible, and they see a book like that and, and stuff, that modeling is going to leave an impression on them. Not only that, when they have questions, even if you don't remember the answer, you'll know where to find the answer. That's a good book to use for something like that. And the second one is How Christianity Changed the World. And, you know, in a little paragraph, I said a bunch of things that the followers of Christ had done. I taught a whole class based on this book in the School of Ministers for the year on how Christianity changed the world. That'd be a good book for you to have and, um, and, and study it and know the truth. Put the belt of truth around your mind. Amen, church? Amen. Yeah. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. He is the truth. He said, he's the fulcrum. Everything starts with him and from him. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All truth emanates from him. Everything is structured around his truth. There's no truth apart from his truth. You can know the person the foundation, the center, the fulcrum of truth. And that's Jesus himself. Why don't you follow me in this prayer if you want to receive Jesus right now, knowing that he demands lordship in your life and knowing that it may cost you something. Follow me, church. Dear Jesus, 
even knowing these things, I'm convinced that you are the truth and you are the way. And I ask you to come into my life and save me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I receive you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.